This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Basically. I am your host, Stephanie Preisner, and with me in studio today is Dr. Lorcan Martin, consultant in general adult psychiatry. Welcome to the studio. Thank you, Stephanie. Would you like to tell me a little bit about you, about what you do, where you practice from before we get into the the body of the 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 body of the podcast? Well, I suppose I've been practicing psychiatry for rather more years than I'd care to remember. Certainly we're talking decades, not years. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm a consultant general adult psychiatrist. So what we usually deal with are people between the ages of about 18 and 65. Um, and by and large, would look after the major psychiatric illnesses, things like schizophrenia, depression, bipolar affective disorder, severe anxiety, those kind of disorders. So that's really what I do. And today we're going to be talking about severe depression. And I think, I don't know, I know from my experience online and, you know, watching Instagram and TikTok, depression and anxiety have become really, they've become become kind of buzzwords, I guess, that, that a lot of people talk about, which in one way is great, but maybe dilutes what people understand as severe depression. Can you talk to us about severe depression and how it differs from other types of depression? I, th- I think you've really hit the nail on the head there, Stephanie, by what you said. Very often words that relate to psychiatric illness find their way into everyday language. So people talk about, you know, the weather being schizophrenic or, oh, my mother-in-law's bipolar. Uh, and of course, they're neither of those things. And people will often say, I'm depressed. And what they mean is I'm upset mm-hmm. or I'm stressed. When we talk about depression in psychiatry, it's a different kind of a thing entirely. And it is what we refer to as a pervasive lowering of mood. And that means that you're feeling low pretty much all the time and in every environment. So it's not just that I'm upset at home or I feel fed up in work. It it permeates most aspects of your life. And with that go a whole pile of other symptoms. So it's not just the lowering of mood. It can be the inability to enjoy things. There can be disturbance in your sleep, maybe your appetite, maybe your energy. People may feel um, that they just aren't motivated or not able to cope with the things they normally would. And depression has various levels of severity. For some people, it can be quite mild and not a, a massive impact on their life. But for other people, unfortunately, it can become quite severe. And that can have a significant level on their function and their ability to maybe go to work, look after their family, look after their homes or look after themselves. And also, unfortunately, as people become more severely depressed, they can wind up with symptoms like delusions, which are false beliefs. So somebody might feel maybe that all their money is gone or that they might believe that they're responsible maybe for a war or a famine, which obviously they're not. Or they may have hallucinations where they maybe hear or see things that aren't there. And frequently they'll hear voices maybe telling them they're a bad person or they're no good. And of course, the other very serious component to severe depression is thoughts of self-harm or possibly even of suicide. Okay. And are those the, like, are those signs and symptoms always there? Might you just have one or two of them? And I guess for people listening, what we want to do is raise awareness of, of this condition. And so if people are listening and they think, yeah, you know, sometimes I do have like really, really bad days, but then I might like hang out with the lads and play a game of five aside and I'm kind of okay. Or, but then I might, you know, go and have lunch with my family and I'm okay. Like if you can be lifted out of it, is that a sign that it's not severe depression? Or what are the signs and symptoms that indicate this is something way more than a bad day? 
usually if you're able to be lifted out of it by some activities like you're talking about, the chances are people don't have severe depression because when depression becomes severe, it pretty much affects everything and it's very difficult to lift yourself out of it. You might feel a little bit better maybe at certain times of the day or maybe you might get a couple of good days and then you're back into the bad days again. But in answer to your first question, no, not everybody is affected the same way. So you might not necessarily have all the symptoms. And an example would be typically when people are depressed, they don't eat and they don't sleep properly. But for a small number of people who get depression, it's the other way around. They eat more and they sleep more. Um, For some people, they don't even necessarily experience low mood. And what they'd experience is just no mood, that they're just unable to feel things. So it's it's a complete apathy. So it's it's actually affects everyone a little bit differently. Um, And it's really important when you're talking to somebody to find out what it feels like for them. Because it's not just about a checklist of symptoms either. It's about the experience for the person. And does this, do these symptoms have to be going on for a particular length of time? For example, I know that for some people, what they're experiencing is grief. Say they lose someone, there's a there's an issue in their life, they have a breakup and they go into a depression, uh, like their mood is low for a while. But there's a reason for it, you know, it's sort of, it's not pathological. It's sort of, it, it's been given, you've been given a reason to feel like this and you feel like this, but some people can't or don't come through that and it can lead to something else. Is there a time limit that this should, or or or? It has to be something that has not been triggered by an event. Well, sometimes it can be triggered by an event. And as you say, people just don't come out of it as as they normally would. Mm -hmm. We all react differently to negative or stressful events. And grief is a very typical one. People can very often present as quite low and not sleeping, not eating, tearful and so on. And that's a perfectly normal part of grieving. Mm -hmm. But that may evolve into a depressive illness. But normally we would be looking for the symptoms to be present for a number of weeks or months. Um, One of the difficulties, of course, is that it doesn't generally come on very quickly. So something that people tend to slide into. Um, So the onset can be quite gradual and sometimes it can be hard to know that it's actually happening until you're nearly well into it. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the downsides of it. Uh, Particularly if it's a first episode or people around you aren't aware of what's happening. They might know you're not quite yourself but they don't really know what it is. Mm -hmm. That was certainly the case for me. Uh, I had a series of miscarriages and it was just a slow steady burn of like one thing after another after another then I couldn't really lift myself out of it but eventually was able to get help but we can talk about that down the line Um, I have a personal vendetta against social media and this culture we live in of manifesting and positivity and toxic positivity this idea that if you are have the st- a strong enough mind and you put a vision board on the wall and you run and you lift weights and you get fresh air you can snap out of this like you have the power but for severe depression it ends up just making you feel worse because you feel like, oh, well, everyone thinks that I'm just self-inflicting this because I'm not doing enough, but I can't summon the energy to get out of bed to do the things. How do you feel about this snap out of it culture? I think one of the things is it brings back sort of what we've tried to get rid of in the stigma of mental illness is that it's a weakness. Mm -hmm. If someone has a mental illness, it's an illness. It's like your thyroid not working, having high blood pressure, having diabetes. It's an illness that needs to be treated. If you could snap out of depression, you would. Mm -hmm. 
And I suppose that's, you know, that that's the simplest thing. So saying to somebody, you know, run, walk, eat better and so on, they're all, you know, it, it may be very useful advice. And, and obviously when we're saying to somebody in terms of their management of depression, we do recommend healthy lifestyle. But for a lot of people, it requires more than that. And certainly, you know, when you get into what we would refer to the moderate or more severe ends of depression, you do need more than just, you know, snapping out of it or thinking positively or any of these kind of things. And generally you're looking at, at other types of treatment, much more um, interventionist type treatments at that stage. So pay, say if people have tried to snap out of it and they've tried their vision boards mm. and they're manifesting or they haven't, what happens when somebody reaches out? Do you think that the first port of call should be a GP uh, or how does it typically work for people who are looking for help, who know there's something not right here? Ideally, they should approach the GP first. Um, it doesn't always work that way very often. It's a trusted friend or a family member, and that's fine too. That The important first step is that you reach out, you talk to somebody. Um, the GP, however, is the person who will look at you and say, you know, are there any other reasons, for example, that you might feel this way? So a typical example might be your thyroid isn't functioning properly. Okay. And you can wind up, you know, feeling sluggish and slowed up and depressed and, and, and so on and put on weight. So um, it could be a physiological thing. It could thing. be a physical thing. Absolutely. Okay. So your GP will rule that out. And when they're satisfied that there's something uh, of a psychiatric nature going on, they may decide to treat it themselves. And, and many people are treated in what we refer to as primary care or your family practice. The bulk of depressions are actually treated there. It's only the more moderate to severe depressions that tend to wind up coming to specialist psychiatric teams. So the GP will be the first person. They'll assess if there's anything else going on. They might decide to treat it themselves or they may decide, actually, this is outside my you know remit and I'm going to refer you on to a specialist. Okay. And so does that mean that someone has to be seeing a psychiatrist to be let's say, prescribed something or be advised to, t to, to, to do talk therapy or something? Or can a GP prescribe something and just manage the, the medication of that? Absolutely they can, yeah. And if they feel comfortable doing that, um, many GPs will do that. Um, and certainly in the milder end of, of depression, many GPs will treat it with antidepressants first if they think it's appropriate. Um, and many GP practices will have access to psychology services or counselling services. So you might not need to go to a specialist team. Um, but as I say, for the moderate to severe end of the spectrum, generally you will. Do we know why? I know we talked about like it can have an inciting incident, it can be grief, but do we understand much about the brain and why people succumb to severe depression and other people don't? We do and we don't. I oh. suppose it's the easy answer yeah. to that one. Uh, it's not very helpful, but it is the easy answer. I mean, we do know there are a number of chemical disturbances in the brain and people who suffer from depression. And that's why antidepressants work. They help to, to, uh, to work on that. Very often, though, you will find people, for example, who have family history. Mm -hmm. um, but that having been said, you may find people with depression who've had a number of negative events, perhaps early in life. Um, as you said there a moment ago, it may be a number of events or maybe one big event later in life. Mm -hmm. We just don't know. And for some people, it just comes completely out of the blue. We have absolutely no idea why they get it. And if there are people listening who think, God, you know, my, my GP has been my family GP for hundred years and I'm not particularly comfortable talking to them about my emotions or it just feels a bit too personal. Who are the other healthcare professional? Like how, what would you advise someone who's nervous about talking to their GP mm. or going to a healthcare professional and saying, look, I just don't feel well? What I would say, first of all, is that your GP has dealt with this before. Mm -hmm. 
probably hundreds of times. So I know it can be difficult to talk about these things, but in many respects, that is the stigma that goes with mental health difficulties and the stigma of psychiatric illness. Um, and very often there is that self-stigma that people stigmatise themselves by not wanting to talk about it. It can be difficult and we would encourage you to go down that road, first of all. If you really don't want to, you can always go to another GP. Mm -hmm. um, but ideally, you should be going to your own GP because they'll know you. They'll know your physical conditions. They know what medications you're on. They're probably the ones who are going to be monitoring you. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, if you see somebody separately and they decide you're depressed and they're going to put you on an antidepressant, they may not be the ones that are seeing you again. Suppose you go to an out-of-hours out doctor or something like yes, that. Yes, okay. So really, it should be the GP that knows you best. Um, and surprisingly, GPs, you know, have seen depression before. Um, it won't be their first time and you certainly won't be the last time either. It can be a little difficult, but actually, you know, the vast majority of GPs will be incredibly sympathetic um, and will completely understand where you're coming from. And are you just saying to them, like, I just don't, I, I feel low, I feel like, or should you be gathering other symptoms like I'm not sleeping, I'm eating too much, I'm not eating, you know, should... Should you be gathering your evidence to present to them or just go in and say, look, I just feel awful all the time? Well, I feel awful all the time is often a good start. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they will probably want to ask you a lot more questions about what's going on. But obviously, the more information you give somebody, the easier it is for them to make a diagnosis and decide what the appropriate treatment plan is. Um, so you don't need to be kind of, you know, doing a list of symptoms. But sometimes it is useful to write down what your concerns are before you go in. Because we all know that when you go into a doctor, um, it can be a stressful set of circumstances no matter what and sometimes things go out of your head and you're just outside the door and you go oh damn I meant to bring up such and such mm -hmm. so it is useful just to write stuff down um, you don't you don't want to be going in with a checklist but at the same time if these are things that are concerning you and you're concerned that you might forget something important write it down or stick it into the notes on your phone or whatever it happens to be to make sure that the GP has as much information as possible. Chances are they'll ask you a lot of questions about things like your sleep your appetite your motivation all that kind of thing anyway. Uh, I've spoken about this a fair amount. My best friend PJ Gallagher had a, a major depressive mm. episode that I was supporting him in, I suppose. Um, and he, I sort of knew that it was time to, you know, bring in the big guns once he... Well, he was speaking to me about suicide earlier, but then would speak... He then had a plan, you know, so started with like suicide would just pop into his head as sort of like, oh, there's the emergency exit and then it would go away and it was kind of a comfort for him. But then I started to ask him, well, do you have a plan of what you would do? And he said no. And then one day he had a plan. And I think that people are really scared of saying to a mental health professional, I have suicidal thoughts because they're afraid they're going to get locked up or their kids are going to be taken off them or, you know, that something terrible is going to happen. How important is it to communicate the level to which you're experiencing your symptoms to a mental health professional? I would say it's extremely important because that will help them decide what the best plan of management for you is. What and I is it correct that like they're not, they can't lock you up against your will and you, they can't... Well, I might come on to that in, in, in okay. just a moment, but I suppose just coming back to what you mentioned about you asking PJ about how he was feeling in terms of, of thoughts of self-harm, people often are reluctant to say to somebody, are you considering thoughts of self-harm? Are you thinking of suicide? Because they think, oh my God, I'm going to give them the idea to do yeah. it. 
that's absolutely not the case. If someone has the idea, they have the idea, you won't be giving it to them. So actually asking them very often gives them permission to talk about it because people can be ashamed of it or they may think you won't understand. Um, so actually asking them opens that door and allows them to talk about it. You certainly won't be giving them the idea. In terms of, you know, if, if someone is has thoughts of suicide, one of the things we do is a thing called a risk assessment. And what that really means is looking at issues around, you know, how strong are those thoughts? Have they a plan? Have they the intent to do it? What support network do they have at home? What protective factors have they got in terms of supports, children, job, and so on? And then, obviously, you need to look at the person themselves that's sitting in front of you. They're the most important person in all of this. And then you decide your plan of management. And it may be that if someone is feeling very unwell, that hospitalization is an option. Most of the, of the depression is treated in the community. Um, and psychiatric teams are by and large well-resourced, not as well-resourced as we would like in some cases. But so you will have not only psychiatrists, you'll have specialist nurses, you'll have occupational therapists, psychologists, and so on. So the vast majority of depression is managed at that level. Sometimes people just won't be able to cope or they may be suicidal and hospital admission is recommended. And again, in those where it's recommended, the vast majority of people will go in as a voluntary patient. Mm -hmm. In yeah, very... For, just for... In PJ's case, by the time it came to that being recommended mm. for him, he couldn't wait to get in. He knew that it was the yeah. safest place for him. Yeah. And and most people will know yeah. that it's time to, 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 to go to into hospital to and they'll follow the recommendations of the, of the professionals. In very rare cases, you will find where people just won't go into hospital or they're so unwell, they just don't understand that they're that unwell. Okay. Um, and it could be that they're just not functioning well enough. And we've seen people, for example, with depression where they will literally just sit there, you won't get a word out of them. Or people who are, you know, deluded or hallucinating. Um, or people who have significant suicidal thoughts where you consider them a serious risk, who aren't prepared to go into hospital. And under those rare circumstances, you may need to consider an involuntary admission. It's something that's not taken lightly. Um, and obviously, if someone comes in as an involuntary patient, as soon as possible, you make them voluntary. And then as soon as possible, you move them back into the community for supports there. Mm -hmm. So hospitalization is a last resort. Involuntary hospitalization is the last resort of the last resort. resort. And if people are, do present to their GP and they, you know, fight the stigma and they get the courage and they speak to their GP and the GP says, I think that you should see a psychiatrist. I'm not, I, you know, I don't want to manage this or I'm not fit to manage this. What typically happens at a psychiatric appointment? Like, how could you prepare for that? Okay, well, I'll tell you what doesn't happen and you don't lie on a couch. Okay. Uh, there are no couches and there are no old men with cigars and bow ties sitting there throwing um, weird expressions at you and waiting to see what you say back. They don't give you pictures of blobs. They don't give you pictures of blobs. Okay. Um, really, we are like any other doctor. You'll go into the, um, the, the appointment. Um, usually what happens is for the first appointment, it's a bit longer than the others because there's a lot of background information looked mm -hmm. for. Um, and so your GP will write the referral. You'll get an appointment to see the psychiatrist and you'll go in and see one of the doctors. In some teams, it may not be a doctor for the initial assessment, but for most cases, it would be. And that first appointment could be an hour to an hour and a half. Um, because not only will they want to know what's been going on for you, but they'll want to know things about, you know, have you had any psychiatric illness in the past? Issue, you know, issues you might have had in, in terms of upbringing. They'll want to know about family background, employment history, relationship. And a very important bit is what we call pre-morbid personality, which is what are you like when you're well? Okay. How different are you now to what you were like before? 
And, and is the depressed won't... is the depressed person the best metric of that? Like, are, do they? I feel like sometimes I need to be well in myself to have the self-awareness to know, actually, I'm a good person. I'm a fun person. I'm a nice person to be mm. around. But if I'm in a severe depression, then I'm like, well, I'm useless and I'm always like this. And, and that brings up a really important point because usually we ask a relative to come along with them. Okay. And with consent, obviously, would say, now can we talk to your mother, father, sister, brother, wife, husband, whatever it is. And we would get some background. We call it a collateral history. Okay. And we would get some background in terms of how they've perceived the person to be and how different is this now from the way they normally would be. Okay. So when all of that is done, um, we refer to the multidisciplinary team. That's what I was talking about earlier on, all these various professionals working together. A decision will be taken in terms of the management plan. Now, for severe depression, it, it would by and large involve some medication. Mm -hmm. Okay. And usually there are other things to it as well. So you may be referred to a psychologist or a cognitive behavioural therapist. If there are other issues going on, you may be referred to somebody else with specific training in a particular type of therapy. So it's very seldom that severe depression is treated with medication alone. You would normally have other professionals involved providing other non-medication therapies. I just want to take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. It's estimated that approximately 150,000 people per year in Ireland are living with severe depression. Starting a conversation about how you're feeling is often the first step towards getting the right support. And so to raise awareness about severe depression, Janssen Sciences Ireland created Talking Depression, a campaign to support open and honest conversations. By sharing your feelings with someone, you give yourself the best chance of getting the right support. And you may also help others to feel more comfortable to speak about their experiences in future. Visit the Janssen With Me website to access information and resources for people living with and managing severe depression. And does the same treatment plan tend to work for everyone with severe depression or are they kind of tailor-made to what your specific issue is? In broad strokes, they would be very similar for everybody. Okay. However, in the sense that there would be, when we're talking severe depression, there would generally be medication and there would generally be other therapies. Mm -hmm. The specifics can differ quite a lot. Um, so in terms of medication, it's the question of which medication suits you best. What symptoms have you got that might you know, be best treated with a particular type of medication? And it's very important to remember that what works for me might necessarily work for you. The dose that works for me might be the dose that works for you. So even though you might be half my size, you might need twice the dose of medication. So psychiatric medications don't work like, say, antibiotics or blood pressure medications. Okay. They're very individual, people's responses to them. So aside from the medication side of things, then it's a question of deciding what other therapies might be useful. The most typical one in depression will be what we call cognitive behavioural therapy, which looks at how your thoughts and your feelings and your behaviours all interact and have a, an impact on each other. Mm -hmm. And that would be the, the, the classic one. But there may be other types of therapy as well that are, are, are involved. And for example, if somebody has a background history of, say, childhood sexual abuse, you would refer them to a particular, particularly trained counsellor for that. Um, if people have difficulties with alcohol and drugs, you may refer them to an addiction counsellor. Um, if there are stressors like, say, housing, finances and things like that, you may refer them to the team social worker. Um, and also the other important thing within a mental health team is that people's roles are not always typical of what you think they're going to be. So the social worker may do a whole wide range of therapies in addition to the more typical social work things. Clinical nurse specialists may do a whole raft of specialised therapies as well. So 
mental health teams, when they're functioning well, there's a lot of overlap between what the individual professions do. And it's all about finding the best fit for the, the person sitting in front of you. That's sort of then a kind of like a wraparound service, which I guess is really yeah. helpful for the person. Yeah. Um, I know for, I've been, you know, I've taken medication several times and on different times it's taken, you know, sometimes I'm like, I felt worse for a couple of weeks and then it levelled out or sometimes I didn't feel and there was a lot of tweaking involved. Is that typical? And how, what are the kind of supports, I guess, available while the psychiatrist is doing that kind of tinkering and how long would you expect it to take before someone feels the benefit of the treatment? Okay, and and you've raised a really important point there that psychiatric medications don't work quickly. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you've got a chest infection, you take the antibiotic for a week, you're done. Yeah. All right. If your blood pressure is high, you take the blood pressure medication and assuming it's the one that suits you, your blood pressure comes down pretty quickly. Antidepressants don't work that way. So they do take a number of weeks to work. And, And we normally say to people, three to six weeks, mm-hmm. all right? The difficulty, of course, is that it might not be the one that suits you or the dose might not be the one that suits you. Okay. So that's where you, you refer to us doing the tinkering. It, it really is about tailoring it to the individual. And sometimes it can feel a little bit like trial and error. And there is an element of that to it because you don't necessarily know from the person sitting in front of you what medication is going to work best for them or what medication they're going to be able to tolerate best. And we all have different tolerabilities for different medications. So while that's going on, there's nothing to stop you starting to engage in therapy. Okay. Now, for some people, they might be quite down on themselves and until such time as the medication kicks in, they might be able to do any sort of, you know, meaningful in-depth therapy. So it might simply be something supportive and just monitoring them. little, You know, some education around what's happening and, and, and so on. And it's also really important when you are starting a medication to say to somebody, well, this is what we anticipate from it in terms of how quickly it will work, but also in terms of possible side effects you might get. So I'll give an example. Supposing your medication is one that that makes your stomach sick for the first week you're on it. If I don't say to somebody, well, actually, you could feel a bit nauseated for the first week you're on it, they take it, they feel nauseated, they stop it. Okay. And one of the biggest issues we have, of course, is people taking medication regularly. You know how difficult it is to remember to take your antibiotics for a week Mm -hmm. and not forget them. Well, if you're taking something for a lot longer, it can be a lot more difficult. But as we always say, no medicine ever worked in its box. So you do actually have (laughs) to take take them. Um, But I think it's important to educate people beforehand. Now, look, you won't get every, not every side effect will be predictable. Mm -hmm. But if you say to people, look, these are the sort of common side effects that you might experience. Mm -hmm. So that's important. Um, And and also, as you said yourself, for some medications, you might feel a little bit worse on them before you get the benefit. Unfortunately, with some of these medications, the side effects kick in quite quickly. The the benefits don't Don't, kick in quite so fast. And that is one of the downsides of them. So it's about hanging in there. And do you have any advice for people who have tried multiple types of treatment, be it medication or talk therapy, but who haven't found relief and are still in a severe depression? I think it's important to sit down with your treating team and say, what are the options here? Okay. It's also important to look at, are there any reasons why you're not responding? So let's assume you've taken, you've tried several medications and you've taken them exactly as prescribed Mm -hmm. um, and you haven't done well. You know, are there any other psychotherapies that might be of benefit? It's important sometimes to look at what else might be in the background that might be lingering that maybe hasn't been discussed yet. 
Okay. Um, like from your history? From your history, okay. exactly. Um, is somebody maybe using alcohol or drugs and not disclosing it? That's another possibility. Mm-hmm. Are they on any other medications that may be having an impact on their mood? For example, steroids or, you know, there are other medications that have impact on mood. Is there something else physical going on that hasn't been discovered yet? We mentioned thyroid earlier on. That's one of the more obvious ones, but there could be other physical reasons as well. So it really is doing a complete overview of what where we, what we've done so far and what have we not looked at yet and then sitting down and, and, and working through it. The other thing, of course, is that like anything, you know, we can only do so much as professionals. Some of the work has to come from the person themselves. Yes, okay. And I know that can be hard work for them, um, but we always say, you know, you do need to meet us halfway, mm-hmm. however difficult that might be. And sometimes in the early days, it might be you only need to meet us a quarter of the way. We'll do the 75%. Yes, yeah. But as it moves on, then, you know, you do you do need to get some commitment and work from the person themselves as well. And if somebody has had severe depression and, and, and is currently, you know, in treatment or whatever, can it be cured? Like, can it be like, okay, we fixed that, it's never coming back. Or if you have had it, you then are someone who is sort of more preconditioned to maybe go have it again. Okay. We could never say that your depression is cured. Off you go, we, you'll never get it again. Mm-hmm. That, but however, there will be some people who will just have one episode and never have it again. So that can happen, but we never know that at the time. Okay. Um, once you've had it, it does leave you more vulnerable to developing it again. And one of the things we often say to people is, you know, be watchful for the signs. Um, and, you know, we would normally educate families the same way. You know, just be keep an eye out for the signs. It might be the sleep goes off. It might be become a bit more withdrawn or work performance drops off or whatever it happens to be. People have relapse um, signs that are different for everybody. Um, and it's important to recognise them and then get in there early. Because like so many things, the earlier you treat it, the, the quicker the people are likely to respond. I feel like sometimes if people are, you know, heading into another episode or or maybe relapsing, if that's the term we want to use, maybe a family member or, or a partner might see it, but the other person, they don't see it themselves yet. And it can be quite a touchy subject, you know, like I think you might be slipping back mm-hmm. to where you were and someone's like, no, I'm fine. How do you have any advice for, you know, relatives of people listening who kind of might feel I think I, I think John or Mary is, is slipping back into their depression but they don't seem to see it but they're still on their medication so should this be happening at all? Well I, one thing I will say to you you've you raised an interesting point there that just because you're on medication doesn't mean you can't relapse mm-hmm. it makes it much less likely okay. but it doesn't mean it won't happen um, and it's not a weakness on your part it's not a failure of the medication it's just it's the nature of the illness. Um, one of the most important things, I think, when somebody is well is to have those conversations in terms of how are we going to approach this if we think you're becoming unwell? And that's something you can work on with the team. There is a book called The, the Little Book of Big Conversations, which is very helpful. Oh, great. Um, and, and a lot of people find that quite useful in terms of broaching the subject. Um, but it is important to maybe just sit down and have that relapse prevention plan in place it is something that needs to be discussed, but also discussed regularly. You don't just do it once. Yes, okay. Because the person needs to know that, you know, if if my wife says, you're not sleeping as well as you used to, or, you know, you seem a bit more irritable than you normally would be, um, that they're doing it because they're, they're concerned, concerned about you. Um, but again, it comes down to working with the team as well. And also, you know, the person saying to their, their spouse or whatever that, you know, uh, that I'd like you to approach the team 
if you think I'm becoming unwell, so that maybe a nurse could call or a doctor could offer an appointment and so on. So you can put things in place to okay. try to reduce that, that that difficulty. So is it okay for a spouse or a friend to call a GP or is it going to be like, a, this is a GDPR issue, I can't talk to you about Stephanie's care, so she's just going to have to... Well, uh, under normal circumstances, unless there's risk involved, we would always observe confidentiality. But okay. we can have it set up in such a way that, you know, your next of kin... You know, that you yes, give consent. You give consent to us when for your you're next, well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that your next of kin can contact us. Yeah. And so just going back to that, when you're on, say you are in treatment, you, you're on medication or you're going to, th- to therapy as advised, you can still maybe have a relapse or the medication maybe needs to be tinkered with again. In that case, would you just go back to the psychiatrist or the GP and say, look, I'm still taking the medication as directed, but I'm starting to feel a little bit like those things are coming back or... Yeah, and I mean, it may be that the medication needs to be adjusted. It may be that there's something else going on that's causing the problem. It might be an additional stress at work. Mm-hmm. It may be something that's happened to you. You might have, you know, maybe become redundant. You might have lost someone through bereavement. Um, or it may just be that there's something physically going on that you might need to be checked as well. And we've seen that ourselves. People relapse with depression. And then when you check, you discover that there's something physical underlying it as well. Um, but... Also, it doesn't necessarily mean the medication needs to be adjusted. Sometimes they might go back for what we refer to as a top-up for their cognitive behavioural therapy. Okay. So it's not all about just medication. Just support. I think support that's really important. Again. So and it may be accessible other ways. And what other supports then are available to people who, who have severe depression apart from the medication um, or, or their loved ones? Well, I mean, obviously you will have supports from within the mental health team. Mm -hmm. That's the most important thing, first and foremost. But, you know, obviously we encourage people to become as independent as possible and to have as much autonomy as possible. So, you know, being completely reliant on on a mental health team is is not good for somebody. Um, And we would encourage people, obviously, to, you know, engage in a healthy lifestyle, engage in activities that they enjoy. Um, But also there are a number of support groups around things like Grow, Aware, Shine, um, there are online resources like Mental Health Ireland, um, College of Psychiatrists of Ireland, the Royal College of Psychiatrists in the UK would have a lot of online resources. Um, so there's a lot of, of support out there. Um, I would be wary about just randomly picking things off the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of very good, you know, YouTube videos and so on out there, but I would come by them by a recommendation from a trusted online source or from a professional rather than just randomly picking something. I'll jump in here and be the trusted online source and shout out uh, ie forward slash depression which or you can find on the Janssen Ireland YouTube channel and that's Janssen with a J. I'm being very European. So it's J-A-N-S-S-E-N with me.ie forward slash depression. Um. Do you think that our current lifestyle, our sort of digital attachment, our social media, the connections that we make, maybe a post-COVID thing, that, that severe depression is on the rise that you see with with people or that it's kind of as it always has been? I don't think we've seen a particular rise in it following COVID. Mm-hmm. I think you have raised an interesting point, though, in terms of our modern lifestyle and dependence on digital interaction. Mm -hmm. It's all very well having a Zoom meeting, although I hate them. Um, But at the same time, people talking about, I've got a thousand friends on Facebook. Well, no, you really don't. Uh, Have you any friends in the real world? And and this is something that we we would all be concerned about, um, is the lack of human interaction. Um, and that's something that COVID did cause a problem with. Um, and, and that's something that we would be 
very keen to say to people, by all means, use social media, but keep it in its place. Mm-hmm. You need real people in your lives. That was something I was annoyed at during COVID, that phrase, social distancing. I feel like it should have been called physical distancing. But like the social distance between us got so huge when actually we just needed to be two metres apart, but we're way further than that. And some people, you know, haven't haven't managed to get that back yet, I guess. Yeah, and, and I think for some people, particularly older people, I think they found it difficult to readjust to life since they've you know, come out of the, the come out of the, the pandemic period, mm-hmm. um, and there's an anxiety associated now with with going back into the real world. Um, we saw it with some of our patients. It wasn't really a depression thing; it was more an anxiety thing. Yes, uh, trying to reintegrate back into the world again, having you know shuttered yourself away for so long. Is there a particularly vulnerable age bracket? for depression or is it sort of an equal opportunities destroyer? It, it's it's a fairly equal opportunities uh, destroyer, yeah. Uh, it, 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 it can affect some people more than others. Um, I suppose the thing is it can happen to anybody. It is a little more common in women. Um, but that is tends that hormonal or societal? It, it's probably both. Okay. Um, but certainly a number of studies would have shown that, that women with a lot of, for example, traumatic events in their childhood would be more prone to depression, particularly in maybe the lower socioeconomic groups. Mm-hmm. That having been said, it tends to even itself out over time. And, and really, I think to say any one group more than the others will be more vulnerable would be perhaps a little bit misleading. Mm-hmm. Certainly if you've had a more traumatic upbringing or you've had a number of negative events, it does make you more vulnerable. Um, if you have a strong family history, it makes you more vulnerable. But it really is one of those things that can happen to anybody. And just for people listening, how, like GP aside, psychiatrist aside, what do you recommend for people just to start these conversations with each other? Because I think, and PJ would say this, the thing that saved his life was being able to talk to me and the thing that made me be able to talk to him is that I'm not afraid of talking about suicide with people because I know I know that I'm not I, I feel like some people think I'm not going to mention suicide because then if they do it it'll be my fault and whatever and I know that somebody dying by suicide is not ever going to be my fault and they you know so I'm not afraid of those conversations and I have a, a, a great support network myself of friends that I can say, I really need to dig out here. Like today is the worst day ever. Um, but I a lot of people don't have that. And I don't know if it's that they're afraid that their friendships aren't strong enough to take their worst days or that they'll be judged or that people will think, oh God, she's too much. I can't deal with her or him. Do you have any advice from your experience of seeing people improve through severe depression about these social connections and how to develop them? I think the first bit is saying to somebody, I'm not feeling great. And that says an awful lot, but that's saying very much. Yes, yeah. And I think if someone is genuinely interested in how you are, they will say, what's up? And it can be something as simple as that, that opening. It can be very difficult to broach it and say, I think I'm depressed and I'm going to kill myself. Yes. Okay. And I know I'm being a little bit facetious there, but that's an, that's a huge amount to dump on somebody. Yeah. Um, and they don't know what to do with it. Whereas I think the, I'm not feeling great, and then ease in, I haven't been great for a while, I'm not sleeping, I think I might be depressed. And slowly see at each point how they're reacting. How they're reacting. Because sometimes yeah. people will bat that away, like, oh yeah, sure, we all feel like that. And then yeah. you know, this is not the person. This is not the person. person. Um, and I think 
by and large, people are very in tune with stuff like that these days. And people will listen. And if it's somebody who's not inclined to listen, then you, you're not talking to the right person. person. But most people will be sympathetic. They might know what to do about it. They might say, you know, I, I don't know where to go from here. Mm-hmm. I listen to you. Uh, and that's when maybe talking to doctors and things like that is more important. But just having that little conversation to begin with can open a door and let you realize you're not the only person suffering from this, but also that there is a pathway to to getting some help mm-hmm. and a pathway to improvement um, and a pathway to come out the other side of it. And that's the lifeline, really. It's not about, I think, saying to your friend, this is how I feel and now it's your job to solve it. And mm-hmm. like with PJ, I was like, I am way out of my depth here, but you're in a hole and I'm going to climb in here with you. I'm going to stay with you until somebody comes to help us. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not qualified for this. Yeah. And I, th- I think it, it might be something like saying, I'll go along to the doctor with you. Yeah. Do you know? Or if you want to tell me what's going on and you're afraid to talk to the doctor, I'll, I'll tell them. them a ring. Do you know, it, it could be something simple like that. It's often the, the, the small things that make the difference and just get that ball rolling. And I also think asking people how they are and waiting for an honest answer and allowing someone to know I'm I'm actually, I have the bandwidth here to receive your full answer. I'm not just being like, oh, how are you? I'm Grant, see you later. Um, and not all of us have that bandwidth all of the time, but finding people who can receive your true yeah. self is, I think, we're like really powerful. And I think the other thing is if someone is severely depressed, they can't put a face on it for too long. Mm-hmm. So you will know there's something wrong. Um, and that may be the opening. You know, you don't seem yourself. So even if they don't come to you, you can go to them. And, you know, is there anything you'd like to talk about? Dr. Lorcan Martin, is there anything else you think that we need to know um, to raise awareness and, and open these discussions? I think the single biggest thing is to realise help is available and help comes in a lot of different forms. Um, People sometimes think, you know, oh, it's all about medication or it's all about this or it's all about that. When you go to see somebody for treatment, the treatment plan is going to be tailored to work for you. I think that's the most important thing. And the supports are there to get you out the other side of it. Yeah. And, you know, January can be a cruel month. So for those listening, you know, take heed I guess and uh, if you're struggling reach out we'll put in the show notes uh, places that you can reach out to and thank you for listening to another episode of Basically that was Dr Lorcan Martin consultant in general adult psychiatry and I have been your host Stephanie Preisner our music is by Only Ruin our graphic design is by Kahlo Gara we're produced by Hilary Barry and we're part of the Headstuff Podcast Network This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.